Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. The human climate. It's much more than a political climate or even just our interior climate. My guest today is Carol Smaldino. She brings a developmental approach to her work as a psychotherapist. She's a Huffington Post contributor, and her blogs explore the connection between emotions and social political issues. A native New Yorker, Carol divides her time between Colorado and Italy. I'm thrilled to have her here today as we talk about facing the divisions inside of us and between us. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. I started out working in the welfare department, and I worked at a hospital, and and I'm a social worker. And so I always had an interest in the connection between the inside and the outside, and I think just organically, politics have seemed part of life. I think perhaps being Jewish has influenced that because the Holocaust was the major event of the 20th century in terms of Jewry and maybe many others, as well as Hiroshima and Nagasaki and all the wars we've had. I was uh, an avid protester against the war in Vietnam. You know, I was just in time for that music and protest scene. And I have always thought of what we can do or what can we do in terms of socially to help the psyche. So I've never seen a person's psyche in and of itself. I've seen the role of a therapist as evaluating what is outside as well as what is inside. So it's how the, how the climate also affects us. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So those, those two things aren't separate. I don't see them as separate. No. Yeah. Unless we live in, you know, as an ostrich with our head in the sand. Right, which is not that uncommon. Like you're saying, this outer climate and inner climate. What What is your definition, Carol, of the human climate when you say that? Well, again, it, it, it seems a little mysterious, but I was sitting in a coffee shop thinking about why more isn't done to actualize healthy responses to help people not be as depressed to help people not be so lonely, to help advocate for climate change. And it just kind of dawned on me that there have to be reasons. I mean, there have to be reasons. And I sort of, as as a natural inclination, tend to want to be one of the pleaders and one of the marchers. And I started to see that just doesn't do any good. And really, I know from myself, if somebody lectures me, I... I don't have a very good response. So I thought, well, let me look at this as I would an individual. If someone doesn't follow advice, let's say, there has to be a reason. Either the advice isn't good or there are things going on inside. So if a society doesn't follow the protocol that's recommended by scientists, let's say, and it's backed up, then there has to be a reason. So I thought, what are these reasons? And then I thought, why aren't other people talking about these reasons? And I never felt particularly brilliant about going forward and 
seeking and searching. I just thought, why aren't other people doing the same thing? Asking why. Why are people so stubborn? Why are people so in their own rut? Why are people so closed? Yeah, and I and you asked me about the human climate. I started to think that there is a climate that is made up of the mood of the social scene, the mores, the comparisons that we make. In our case, the the importance of appearance very often over what really is going on inside, the, the importance of celebrities, uh, the importance of, I think, more and more who can be charismatic in such a way to make people follow. And it doesn't always have to do with the evidence. I think that's evident in our political system mm-hmm. right now. And for me, there's not a better time because of all the divisiveness that's been happening in the last several years Mm -hmm. now where people are so polarized and how do we help condition ourselves to be in that ground where we can connect again, where we can be in community with one another, where we can see each other as allies instead of the other. I think that's crucial and that When I had first begun to write about the shadows and Carl Jung, I entitled a chapter Dancing into the Arms of Carl Jung because when I read his his work on the shadow, I thought, I'm home, I'm here, because it made so much sense. And then I started to think about the fact that most of us are just not trained to know the full array of our emotions all of them. We're taught to be good. We're taught not to appear a certain way, but we're not taught to get to know all the things we feel and all the things we feel as human. So if we can't get to know those things, we either have what I call emotional congestion. We just pile one feeling on top of another until we can't think straight, literally, or we or in denial about the feelings we have. And what happens is we either explode suddenly and we wish that away in some way, or we project those feelings onto other people. And all that means is we see in other people what we can't see in ourselves. That can be aggression and that can be softness. So we see other people as the other. And once that happens, all bets are off because we stop caring. We just stop caring. And so the idea that Jung proposed, I'm just using it, is that we take back our projections. And in order to do that, we have to have a huge amount of acceptance and comfort and safety to own that we're capable of the worst and the best. That's so beautiful. And It it makes me think of your earlier reference to the Holocaust, because I feel like that was people's ability to do exactly that. Once they were able to make the other person the other, they could dehumanize them. And so to some extent, you know, that's what I see and and witness happening to some extent now. Yeah. I mean, if, if I can say that there are now, as we speak, hearings in Guantanamo, about military torture, and that happens to be something that has been on my mind for years. I was actually at one of the conferences of the American Psychological Association where they did not vote against 
psychologists being part of military torture, which, of course, I think you know has been called enhanced interrogation. And there is an Amazon movie about that right now called The Report with Adam Driver, and I need to watch the rest of it because I feel that is an example where someone can say, well, these are terrorists, even if they have not been proved or in some ways, in some cases, even charged with anything. And they have been tortured in the most abominable ways that are not only, I think, disgraceful and humiliating to the nth degree, but they're not even effective. And the people who have perpetrated these things are on TV as we speak saying, I would do it again. I would waterboard 183 times this person to save America. And I think once people decide that they don't deserve the Geneva Conventions, and we do, we're on a slippery slope. So part of the way that we come back from this, from that way of being, what I'm hearing you say through some of Carl Jung's information is really looking at our brokenness, looking at our own shadow side, before we can save maybe some of the world or save some of the community around us, we've got to be willing to do that inner work within us and look at that part of us that is truly broken and embrace and accept those emotions. We can have compassion for those emotions within us. And that's where I think the human climate can come in because we need a human climate that is more friendly towards all the emotions. So take working with parents as one example, or working with a family. There's there's so much pressure for parents who are supposed to not be helicopter parents, but who are held responsible if their child is a bully or if their child is bullied, if they're raising a victim. And so I don't think there's enough in the outside acceptance for what it feels like to be on the spot and how scary that is and how much we need help. We can't do this on our own. That's the thing. And so even if if we can stop being called snowflakes and admit that vulnerability as one example is not something you just lean into easily, is not something that you kind of glorify and gloss over, but it really is scary and it really can be a kind of mini breakdown and you need someone holding you up. This is not that pretty. Yeah, this work is not glamorous at all. No, no. I think that that's part of this, you know, lean into vulnerability and just feel that. And people are taught to do that at jobs. I mean, no one can lean into vulnerability in your work, in your place of business. You'll have a breakdown on the floor and you'll be fired. Right. So how do we find that delicate balance? How do we start claiming because I don't know if it's reclaiming if we've never allowed ourselves to be vulnerable. How do we start claiming or bringing acceptance to that part of ourselves? You know, I'm glad you asked that because I call this vulnerability protected. And I think that vulnerability protected, when it is protected, can be a gateway to courage. But I think part of protecting vulnerability is to locate 
your own feelings and locate what you would need to feel safe enough to begin to put your foot in the water, your toe in the water. In helping a friend, he and I came up with something I thought of as putting clothing on feelings and just kind of putting a sweater on or a t-shirt on or something that doesn't make you feel so naked so soon. And that makes me think of what I saw in the movie on torture when one of the psychologists started to shave, literally shave the detainee and the FBI person said, what are you doing? This is the most humiliating thing you can do to someone. But getting back to vulnerability in general, it's kind of like being naked. And you don't really want to be naked unless you trust the situation and you don't feel full of shame from the outside or from the inside. So it's it's a matter of kind of timing and going a little bit slowly and knowing what feels safe enough. And of course, there's a risk. There's a risk when we do anything for the first time. But if you don't feel safe, you're going to skip over your feelings and you're not going to be able to take back the shadow. You're just going to make believe. What conditions will help us to cultivate this sense of safety? You know, because we're not going to be able to be vulnerable with just anyone. And as you said, like we're not going to be vulnerable at work, just any circumstance. So if we're going to accept our shadow side and be with this sense of vulnerability, what helps cultivate that sense of safety in your experience? Well, I'm very big on resistance, actually. I have a lot of respect for it because I think that we're all afraid to change. And so I ask a lot about fear and I I get involved with a person's not wanting to change. And I think that we can get in some ways addicted to how we live. And I talk about the reliability of addiction because, you know, we can look at an addict and go, oh, my God, that's so terrible. I have to save that person. But that person can be living out a script that's fairly predictable and predictability needs to be understood as something that we can rely on. So to give that up can feel, "Uh uh-uh, I don't want to do that. So I'm pretty prone to get involved in empathizing with why one doesn't want to do that. And so I think that helps a person air the grievances with changing. And it helps really make it safer. It's like When you talk about something, it can alleviate a certain amount of of anxiety, especially if you feel you're being listened to. Absolutely. I love this because I think that's truly how I see a lot of clients in my office. When we talk about exactly that, our brain loves predictability. Our brain loves the familiar. And what you're saying makes so much sense to me because, of course, We like to stay in those familiar ways of being, even if they don't serve us, even if they're very painful, they're familiar. And so there's amazing amounts of comfort in that. So I love that opening up that conversation to Mm -hmm. say, yeah, that makes sense that you don't want to change. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about that. Mm -hmm. There's so much power in speaking our truth to be able just to speak it like this is this is why it's hard for me. This is why I'm resisting even feeling better. 
And being in the company of someone who's really listening and talking back to you based on the listening is I have the chapter called Talking Out Loud, you know, and talking out loud is when you kind of play in the realm of talking that you sort of meander and wander. And in that process, something can shift or a new idea can form or a question can form or a tear can form. And there is a certain safety in that atmosphere if you're with somebody who's not tormenting you and not judging you and not shaming you. So does that have to be a therapist, do you feel like? No, I don't. I mean, I do feel that we're not that well equipped to know all the stuff about ourselves. And I do think that we very often need an observer to help us stop in our tracks and examine something. I think I'm quite secular, but I'm I'm very Jewish and I love the I love the grief work in the Jewish tradition because that has to do with really someone being allowed to fall apart as one does in grief, if one can, and really kind of being held while one collapses. And at the same time, one is not expected to collapse all the time. So if you go into a condolence call that's called Shiva, and I sometimes warn people or or try to prepare them and say, you don't really know what you're going to find. You can find people who are laughing hysterically because one doesn't stay with abundant grief just endlessly. One needs a break and takes a break. So there can be a silly story and then there can be an outburst of tears. So I think that's really important. And for me, having some friends where one can, I guess I'm saying, have a mini breakdown or call crying and then sometimes overreact and recover together, I think, can be gloriously intimate and safe and becomes, this is a person I kind of know will be in my life, even if we fall apart together and even if we make mistakes. And at the same time, if things are overwhelmingly deep and keep recurring, I think therapy can be really good. And of course, I'm very biased about the kind of therapist that most people need. I like when people can find a therapist who goes deep and tries to understand what is going on inside and doesn't just give advice that could be generic. You can read that on the internet and go crazy with all the kinds of advice. But I like advice that's based on also who the person is and helping the person get ready to take that advice. I love this too, this part about how being authentic with our friends, with our people. I I think that references back to something you said earlier, to be able to have our entire human experience, which is all those messy emotions that we don't always like to show people. We like to present really together. Everyone has that outer self. And yet there are people that we can truly, our close friends that we can really let down and be us at our sometimes messiest, the darkest, quote unquote, emotions. And and I love that to be able to share that with someone and have them hold us in that relationship and how healing that can be. Yeah. You know, being in a couple and in an intimate relationship, because sometimes the wish to be held is going to be frustrated because sometimes if we are in a relationship, we want to be held. 
and our partner has no intention of holding us because he, she is in the exact same situation and what you get. And I have been there really quite a bit. And I've been married a long time. So I've been there a lot is why can't you just blah, blah, blah. And the other person says, well, why can't you just blah, blah, blah. And why can't you know that I'm not really angry at you? Well, because my trauma was triggered and I'm very sensitive or my trauma wasn't triggered, but I got sensitive and I couldn't. So the idea of lessening our expectations is really tough because we have all this advice that we're bombarded by, you know, what a good couple looks like and what people are just supposed to be like. And I think it's very hard to say, well, we're not like that. And, you know, maybe we're supposed to be what we're supposed to be and get better from here. Your support means the world to us. Hi, it's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member-supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, all of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at noco.fm. Hey there, I'm Kev Cat and I host No Code Radio, the weekly hour-long show dedicated to spotlighting musicians within the LGBTQIA community. You can listen to the show every Friday night at 7 p.m. Mountain Standard Time at NoCo FM. That's N-O-C-O dot F-M. So in relationships, in our primary relationship, it's not always possible to show up in the way that maybe our partner needs us. Yeah. And I think so some of what I used to talk about recuperation as a vital sign. And I think that so much of what happens in good relationships, even in friendships, you know, that are good, is that we kind of mess up and then we recover. And in the relationships that are more surfacey, that's okay. We don't go there. But in the relationships that are kind of deeper, it's like, ooh, I should have done that. And sometimes when, let's say, I am not available to my partner, I don't feel so great about that. And I think there has to be a space in terms of reowning the shadows also to say, I was pretty selfish there and I couldn't think of you. And all I was thinking was that you had offended me and I was hurt and I couldn't budge. So there has to be a kind of forgiveness for what we can't do, even if we've read it and it sounds beautiful online. Yeah, that that we would love to be that ideal partner. And yet, again, this process is about being your authentic self. And so our authentic self doesn't always show up at the times maybe that we would like to. 
And so to be able to come back and say, like, as you said, beautifully, to own our shadow and to own that, yeah, I wasn't able to be there in the way that even I would have liked to be, but I was triggered too. Yeah, you know, I talk about the ceilings and the basements, and I think that so much of the advice we get comes from the ceilings and it sounds so neat and so smooth and so much of where we really live it's in the basements where things are really messy and we we are really messy so it sounds so easy to come in and be empathic perfectly attuned and then we come in and say blah I mean I don't want to use a four-letter word so you know we kind of mess up and then it's like we're in the basement and so I think even in therapy, we need someone who will join us where we are. And as therapists, we need to join a person where he or she is rather than assuming he or she can come up to where it sounds so pretty. My experience, too, because I have worked with some of these therapists as co-therapists, is the importance of really finding a therapist that's a fit for you and that is willing to do those deep dives because the reality is you know therapists aren't perfect people either right. and that there are therapists who because of whatever their own life situation or experiences have been is not necessarily willing to dive deep because that's not comfortable for them right it's really easy I love this analogy of staying upstairs yeah you know and that part for me part of that is just like we can intellectualize things and that's really safe. It feels really good up there. Yeah. And I talk a lot with my clients about this 18-inch journey into our hearts. And so when we're diving more deeply and, and we are dealing with some of the darkness and we are dealing with the parts of us that aren't pretty, what an important journey that is. Right. And so to be able, if, if that's the work that you're interested as a listener, you know, as, as you're interested in doing that deeper work making sure that you find someone that really can go there with you. Right. Extremely important. Let's talk about the developmental divide. Can you speak about that? Yeah. I think that we've lived in a culture where we want the immediate result. And I don't think that's really new. I think that ages ago, people wanted a certain behavior right now. So shut up and listen. Rather than what is my kid going through? What kind of phase is this? Let me know about what's going on on the inside. Let me look at my kid's face and see that she's trembling. And maybe I can get down on the floor with her and say, it's okay, I'm here. Without saying, stop being shy and do this now. So the idea of the developmental divide is that there is a big divide between people who want the result now and who want the behavior now, as opposed to what will help a person or a child feel safer on the inside so that he, she can grow. And what will help me, let's say, as a parent, if that's the case, also grow. It's like looking at where I am. So looking at and respecting, again, what I can do and what I can't do. So if the book says, for instance, there used to be a book, I don't need to name it, but it was how to get kids to talk. And one of the things that was suggested is to be funny for a parent. And I thought, that's terrible because some people are just not funny. I mean, I like to be funny, 
But some kids are not funny and some kids cannot tolerate humor. You know, they think of it or they feel it as aggression until they're, I don't know, 10 or 11, let's say. So to tell a person who's not funny to be funny is to get a very phony and false aspect going. And so it's a very big decision. How do we want to raise our kids? Do we want to raise our kids to be strong on the inside and to trust themselves? Because when you say that a person has to trust a fit, a person who's seeking a therapist has to see if there's a fit, you can only see if there's a fit if you can trust your own judgment or trust your own intuition or trust your own signals. And if you've been brought up to just behave a certain way, you've been brought up to see authority as an absolute. And so that you can't really trust. You do what you're told. And then I think what happens is a lot of people want to raise children who are strong and can say no to something terrible. But they don't want to raise children who can say no to them. And part of being a parent and part of being a therapist is being questioned. And some of the questions are not only transference. Some of the questions are valid. Because if someone comes to your office and has a problem with what you just said, there may be an aspect of mutuality in the learning that can help the growth of the connection. So uh, I obviously have a bias. I don't mean that kids should be allowed to run into the street without being grabbed. But other than absolute safety, I think that kids have to be taught and helped and guided. But on the other hand, they need to be listened to so much more than they are. And I have this fantasy of school boards having kids on the board helping to design classes that will have meaning. You know, I used to see people who went to schools and and they talked about bullying and they lecture these kids to death instead of asking kids what it's like, what it's like to walk in the hall after class on when you see something, say something. Because you can only say if you see something, say something if you're ready. If you're ready and there's someone who's going to listen and not get you in deeper trouble. So I guess there are all kinds of implications to our actions that I think are really important and not just do it. I mean, nothing against Nike, but not just do it. If you've been brought up to just respect authority, it's hard to know how you feel, like you said, and get in touch with your intuition. And Don Miguel Ruiz calls that our domestication, Mm -hmm. you know, that the wild animal part of us, so to speak, has been domesticated so that we can no longer even trust our instincts about things. And the importance of really allowing our kiddos, our children, to have their own voice and to share their own experience, as long as they have these guidelines and have the safety, they can still be who they are and that they have valuable, valuable information to share with us. Absolutely. About their experience. And they can teach us. That's the other beautiful piece, too, is that one one of the things I was hearing you say and what it reminded me of is that we don't always just have to be right as a parent. Right. I have two grown girls and I had two stepchildren. So I get it that there's this part where we go, you know what? We come back and say, I didn't handle that right. Right. And I think that's great modeling because in terms of the shadow and in terms of maturity and coping, it's really great to be able to apologize instead of just teaching our kids to apologize. 
when my daughter was a teenager and I had said no to something and she was arguing her point and she had a good point. I guess what emanated from me was changing my mind. And she would say to her friend at the time, that's her changing her mind face. And I realized that she was probably right. And it was okay with me. I actually like to change my mind because, you know, sometimes we get flip or impulsive and say something too fast. And sometimes we need to think it through. And sometimes we made a mistake. And I remember a person in therapy with me, a man, and he said he was thrilled. He had an absolute experience of being thrilled that making mistakes was okay. I remember working with an ADHD kid in school and she hated mistakes. And I really tried to help her to love mistakes. And I've read that scientists love mistakes because that's how they get it right. They don't get it right by being right. They get it right by being wrong first. And that has to be a value that we help our kids with because otherwise it's shameful. Exactly. I, I can't tell you how many clients I've worked with where what the issue is, is perfectionism. And it, it creates so much anxiety and so much angst because they feel like I have to get it right and I have to get it right the first time. And they've just been enculturated with that. They grew up with that. So the importance of saying, yeah, just like Thomas Edison, he failed and failed and failed and failed. And each time he failed, it was that's the information. Right. That's the data that helps me to do this better the next time. That's very hard because when you go to the Internet, and it's not just the Internet, it's the cultural value. The expectation is to get it right, how to get it right on a first date, how to get right when you get married, how to get it right to get a job, how to do this. And it really becomes how to fool people about what you can act like you can do so that no one will really expect you to be imperfect, which is such a terrible setup. And so then we have a culture in which we don't mean what we say. It's just what we want to present. Right. So how important it is, I mean, what I keep hearing through this, that a, a large part of developing this human climate is truly loving ourselves for all our warts, for all of the aspects of our humanness, the parts that aren't pretty, the parts that are our shadow side. And once we do that, then that becomes what we're able then to gift other people with. And I think remembering that it's not so poetic. It's not as poetic. I mean, you and I are articulating this and we're talking on a radio show, but really in the depths of the corner of a room, things are kind of coming out with a sputter and they're kind of jolty and jerky and uneven and... And messy. And so when we talk about embracing imperfection, if we're too smooth about it, we it's sort of a glorification of the words. And I think if we could get, let's say, schools who can embrace being wrong, really just the fact that a kid is raising his or her hand, he or she doesn't have to be right but that he or she is engaged. And, you know, the founder of an organization in Canada called, her name is Mary Gordon, and it's called Roots of Empathy. And they don't compliment kids on their achievements, which I find very hard to do because I'm a grandmother now. And 
it's all about clapping at little things just because it's so much fun and it's cute. But they don't compliment kids on being right. They just value the information, the participation. And it, it's I think we can borrow from that, that it's great to have kids being engaged, whether they're right or wrong. So I think that's all important. That And in terms of the human climate, it's it's having the outside sources be influenced too, the sources that we keep hearing from. Again, I'm referring to the internet. All the advice we keep having, I think there needs to be kind of a revolt against the smoothness of it all. I'm telling you, if I had a bumper sticker, it would say, life is messy. I and, like it. Yes. You know, tag life is messy. Yes. And how great. Just talking about this, several times I've gotten the chills as, as we've been talking, not just because the studio is a little cold, <laughs> <laughs> but because truly there's a piece here that is just so beautiful. And it, it's like I can feel myself even taking deep breaths, just like what a relief to relax into just being who we already are and, and right. not having to hide that. Right. And also to realize that some of the things we aspire to are not really things that are for us or that we like. I mean, you know, we want to be popular and we want to have belonging. And then we sit down and realize, well, I'm not really a group person. And I don't really like those people I want to like me. I mean, I used to want everybody to like me, even the people I didn't like. And that's not terribly realistic. There is such an inherent need to belong, and oftentimes the pressure to belong to certain groups, which it's not even the right group, as you're saying, for us. I wonder if we could get to this level of human connection, then what a great body of humanity to belong to. I think that would be great. I mean, sometimes I have an image or a fantasy of going to a place on a Sunday morning where they play different kinds of music that is moving and whether we move or we don't or we speak or we don't we just sit together and listen and then we leave or we have a cup of coffee how great it would be to be part of that without having to believe in one god or another or one cause or another or to appear one way or another that i think would be very beautiful you know the the chapter i have about the cost of belonging at any cost is when we do have a human need to belong. And if we have never been valued in terms of who we are, there are people who are going to take advantage of that and offer us the world. And there are cults all around that we think we could never join. But some of what's going on even politically has to do with being in a cult. So it's important that we get to understanding that we have this need to belong and that we can value belonging first and foremost to ourselves. Again, you just gave me the chills. That's exactly it. And so when we do this deep inner work, that's part of the gift is that we get to embrace and own ourselves. Yeah. And I think what's really important is that we're going to fall down, you know, so we can embrace ourselves and then for five minutes, we don't, or for an hour, or for more. But then it's okay. It has to be okay that we can fall down and mess up because we're never going to get it completely right. It, yeah, that it's not a perfect process. And oftentimes I say this, I have so many clients that say, well, when do we get to be done? 
kind of like, when do we arrive where we totally get it and we understand everything? And I say, that doesn't happen. Well, it doesn't happen. And then hopefully there are new things to learn. Well, of course, right? So just like I love the Buddhists that say, you know, every day approach the world with a child's mind. And that's really it. Because if we think we have all the answers, then we miss the boat. And that's kind of the end of your book that I love is to know that we don't know. I I just have to say that, you know, I said earlier to you that I didn't feel that what I was talking about was oh so brilliant, but I thought that I wondered why. And I have to tell you that I'm not a Buddhist and I'm not trained in any of this, but I did approach this as a child. I really said, I wonder why. I don't have any fancy things to say about it. I wonder why. And I wonder why more people aren't asking why. And I'm just going to go with it. And I'm going to travel. And this took me 10 years because it unfolded and unfolded and undressed and undressed, and there were layers and layers. And I was kind of in awe of the complexity of the whole thing. And I wasn't fancy about it. That's the beauty. You don't have to be fancy about it, but you're asking those questions. And that's the beauty for all of us when we're able to just say, why? And be curious. And then we're continuing to learn and grow and experience new things in this life that then help us become even better versions of ourselves. I agree. Carol, thank you so much for being here. The book, again, is The Human Climate, Facing the Divisions Inside Us and Between Us. Where can people get your book? The easiest place is Amazon, online. And to get a hold of you? Carol at thehumanclimate.com. What a treat to have Carol in the studio with me today. There were so many things that we talked about that really resonated for me. The importance for all of us in being able to dive deep and access that shadow side in ourselves, to actually befriend that part of ourselves and allow ourselves to start embracing those emotions which aren't always the ones that we enjoy or show other people. Carol also talked about the importance of being able to connect with people that are safe. Sometimes it's our closest friends that can be our partners. A lot of times it's someone that we also feel that we can do this deep diving with and how wonderful it is when we're able to do that and be at that authentic level with one another. The healing properties that that has are immense. And that at certain times, it's important that we do seek a therapist that can do that deep dive with us. It's being able to learn the deeper language of emotions and our feelings and being able to speak that first to ourselves and then to one another. We also talked about the importance of embracing that life is messy and that we, we can start lessening this pressure to always perform and be perfect and always the perfect person dealing with the situation in the exact right way. That if we could start cultivating an environment, a community starting in our schools where our children are taught that they could just be who they are, having inquiry and interest, just participating as a part of the conversation, that that is truly valued 
that the answer doesn't have to be right, that it's your contribution that matters. If we started doing some of this and acknowledging the importance of not knowing that it's okay for us to ask the why questions, that we can start learning more about who we truly are and embracing this deeper part of who we are as true human beings, that it's an authentic journey into ourselves. And as we start doing that and embracing that shadow side of us, embracing our whole full human experience, then we're able to somehow cross that gap that we can become part of a larger body of belongingness to the human climate. And as we do that, we start affecting the outer climate and the rest of humanity. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO FM.